This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi there. My name is Nikki Peterson. I am the program manager here at the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And I'm so glad you're all here. Thank you for joining us for our 14th annual Big Bang Awards Ceremony. Uh, It's hosted by the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and we're housed here in the Graduate School of Management. We're grateful for the support of our sponsors, the Big Bang judges, mentors, and teams. The success of the Big Bang comes through the dedication of the many business and investment community uh, partners and members that help make this competition a success. Thank you to all of the speakers, mentors, and judges who helped bring the 66 teams to this point in time. We had a record 66 teams register this year. And uh, uh, the most teams we've seen in the uh, history of the competition. It starts in October and ends in May. And through the course of the year, uh, through a, a series of workshops and events, we help the teams build and refine their business concept. Teams submitted a business concept and a business summary which narrowed them down to 15 semifinalists. The 15 teams then pitched to a panel of judges, and and at the semifinals, five finalists were chosen from those 15. You will hear the five finalists pitch tonight, and we will present the first place, the second place, and the People's Choice Award. There are ballots on your seats, and so by the time the last team pitches, we ask that you fill out the ballot and pass them to the right so we can collect those and tally them up. The Big Bang would not be uh, possible without the uh, generous support of our, of our sponsors. And so at this time, I would like to, uh, to thank those who, who uh, dedicated $28,000 in prize money to make this competition uh, possible. The first prize award is, is $10,000. The second place will receive $5,000. And the People's Choice Award is a $2,500 prize. Another $10,500 in prizes will also be awarded in several different prize tracks, including the Moss Adams Ag Innovation Sector Award for $2,500, the UC Davis Blub Center's Big Ideas Promoting Innovation and Social Change Award, and the ASUCD E-Fund Undergraduate Awards. So thank you to our sponsors. At the platinum level is DLA Piper. The gold level sponsors, we have Andrew Barquette, Gary Simon, and the UC Davis Blum Center for Developing Economics. The silver level, Acres Capital, Moss Adams, and SMUD. And the bronze level sponsors, ASUCD, E-Fund, Bank of America, CVF Capital Partners, Lamplighter Financial, and PIPRA. We also have a couple of in-kind supporters, and that includes the Graduate School of Management, as well as a Sticker Giant. At this time, I'd like to invite my colleague, Edward Silver, to come up. He is our program coordinator for the Institute's uh, Ag Innovation, um, Sustainable Ag Tech Innovation Center, sorry. And I'd like to introduce Edward. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Uh, I just want to do a quick rundown on the uh, agenda for what's going on tonight. So first, we're going to start with the presentations of the five finalists. Uh, afterwards, we're going to have Cleve Justice, the executive director of the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, speak about entrepreneurship in the region. 
Uh, and then following that, we will have the revealing of the awards, uh, both for the first, second place, People's Choice, and the three-track awards. Uh, before we jump into all of that, I'd like to jump into a quick summary of the five teams who are finalists this year for the Big Bang Business Competition. So Ambercycle, uh, they've developed a new system to degrade plastic so they are cheaper and easier to recycle. MedWorks Medicine has figured out a way to provide online collaboration to engage everyone to learn about and design medicine computationally. These designs are refined and sold to biotech and pharmaceutical companies, helping to accelerate the medicine-making process. Our third company is Nevap Incorporated, and they are a medical device company that creates solutions to prevent hospital-acquired infections. The current device prevents ventilator-associated pneumonia. Zasaka offers agricultural products and services targeted to smallholder farmer customers. And our final team out of the final five is Z Inspector, and they are a cloud-based content management framework for property management, real estate, construction, and home improvement industries. So without further ado, I'd like to call up MedWorks by Design to present. So uh, my name is uh, Benjamin Samudio. I'm the CEO of MedWorks. Medicine by Design, we are a social good endeavor toward new and better medicine. So we provide an online collaborative platform through which anyone with a web browser can go to wedesignmedicine.com and design medicine. We then refine these designs and sell them to our customers who are medicine makers, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, to lower their cost of making medicine by 20% on average. We also lower the barriers involved in getting medicine to those who need it. So uh, to give you an idea of what our customers go through, the problem that they deal with, I'm going to use an analogy. And so this is, gonna, this is a lock or a safe with a lock on it. And our customers really want to get into that safe. There's something that's very valuable in that safe for our customers. So what they do is they employ a locksmith. But the locksmith has a blindfold on. He can't see what he's doing. So what he does is he comes up with some keys, a set of keys, but they have random designs. And he tries each key against that lock, hoping to find that right key that's going to work to then become, uh, to open up that safe. However, since this is a blind, um, trial and error prone process, brute force process, the vast majority of those keys are going to fail to open up that safe. Now imagine that instead of being blindfolded, this locksmith can actually see what he's doing. And so now he's also given a magnifying glass so he can study how the lock and key interact in the first place. Then armed with this knowledge, he can come up with a small set of keys that's much more likely going to open up that safe than what he was doing before, which is just trying keys that have random designs out against that lock. So what is in the safe that is so valuable, so important, that the world spends $812 billion per year? Uh, the U.S. spends $290 billion per year, and our customers spend $134 billion per year. What is so valuable in that safe? Well, really, the safe is an analogy for a disease target. We can kind of think of that as a lock. And the key is an analogy for medicine. And very much like a key, uh, medicine has uh, different parts to it. It has a structure. It has properties. When those are just right, they can interact with the disease target in just the right way to produce a cure. So when I think about putting together medicine, I like to think of the analogy of Lego pieces. And so the Lego pieces are going to be the parts of the medicine, and they can be arranged in many different ways to come up with many different ideas for what medicine could be. Now, there are 4,500 diseases for which we currently have an idea of how to cure. 
yet we only have uh, treatments for 250 of them. That's only 6%. So why is it, given all of this potential for making great medicine, why is it the case that we have such a small, number, uh, small amount of treatment? And the treatments that we do have aren't necessarily the best, aren't necessarily the ones that we really want. Well, it comes down to this idea of a blind search. So our customers, our medicine makers, they're going to want to uh, stop a particular disease, so they're going to go after a disease target. And so our customers then make a, a large amount of potential medicine, but these designs for these potential medicines are all random, very, just like the keys, right? So very much like the locksmith who's blindfolded, our customers go through each of these designs and test them out against the disease target, hoping that they're going to find the right one that's then going to go on to produce a cure. However, because, again, this is a blind, brute force, uh, trial and error prone process, the vast majority of those designs are going to fail. It's very inefficient, so much so that it has a 95% failure rate, takes $1.8 billion, and takes 13 and a half years to go from uh, an idea for a medicine to uh, actually getting it to the market and to patients who need it. So what do we do? We model how the disease target and potential medicine interact. So you can think about the key and the lock again. And the way that we model this is using very fast computers and proprietary computer models. Computers have become fast enough and powerful enough within the last five years to really understand how the potential medicine and disease target interact in the first place. So this is very much like the locksmith who now has a magnifying glass who can study how the lock and key interact. So we take these proprietary computer models and we link them up with uh, wedesignmedicine.com. This website is live now. And it allows people to be able to see what is happening on the molecular level and be able to come up with designs all within a browser uh, and test those designs out even before a single real uh, potential medicine has been made. And our user interface also allows people around the world, because it's browser-based, to share these ideas for making medicine. So what value then does this allow us to provide for our customers? So again, our customers are going to want to go after a particular disease, a disease target. And what we do is we combine the, what we learn from the user interface with our proprietary computer uh, computational models and experimental validation to come up with a small set of potential medicines that's much more likely going to work against a disease target than what our customers currently do, which is to try out random designs against the disease target and hope that something works. So we call this a focused library build. And what this allows us to do is bring down the failure rate by 15%, uh, bring down the cost by 28%, and bring down the amount of time by 19% that it takes to go from an idea for a medicine to actually having it on the market and with patients that need it. So this is really a win-win-win for everybody. For our customers, the medicine makers, uh, we provide new and less expensive ideas for medicine. We also allow them to tap into new markets and expand existing markets. For our innovation partners, the ones who help us to design this medicine, all of you potentially, uh, this is an educational tool. It's inspirational and it provides volunteer opportunities. For our beneficiaries, those who are ultimately going to be receiving this medicine, we provide new and better medicines through our customers. We also incentivize the pursuit of neglected, rare, and orphan diseases, uh, NRO diseases. These are diseases which would not have been pursued before because they are deemed too expensive. So our business model is that per focus library build, we're going to have an average selling price of $64,000, a cost per goods sold of $32,000, gross profit of $32,000, and a gross margin of 50%. We anticipate one focus library build per year per customer. 
This is our market, primarily a biotech at 97% and 11% annual growth. Uh, and a distant second to that is academia with 2% and 16% annual growth. These are going to be our first customers because um, most of them don't have their own computer-aided drug design or modeling capabilities, and we feel that our product is going to be a great complement to their drug development pipelines. So total available market is 10,000 targets per year. Serviceable available market is 5,000 targets per year. We are going to capture 5% of SAM by 2018. This is our competitive landscape. So on the vertical axis, you'll see um, the speed of computing. And on the horizontal axis, you'll see whether that computing is centralized or decentralized. Because of the models that we use and, and our uh, fast computers, we're in the fast computing quadrants. Because we leverage the power of com computational power of browsers all over the world, we are also in this distributed computing quadrants. So what that allows us to do is have volume and speed in terms of the calculations that we need to design new medicine. But where I think we really are set apart and we're really different is that we do distributed design. So what does that mean? So uh, it's more than just leveraging the power of browsers all over the world. We're leveraging the creativity of people using those browsers all over the world. This is our uh, go-to-market strategy for our customers. We'll have scientific publications, conferences, and sales force established by Q1 of 2015. We already have industry networking. For the public, we'll have general science talks starting in Q1 of 2015. We already have live wedesignmedicine.com website, and this is where you can find the tools to, de to design medicine that I'm mentioning here. And in academia, we'll have incorporation into classrooms by Q4 of 2014, scientific uh, publications in Q1 of 2015. We'll have our GUI launch in Q4 of 2014, our first customer by Q2 of 2015, uh, positive cash flow by Q1 of 2016, profitable by Q2 of 2017, scale up by Q1 of 2018, and an exit at Q4 of 2018. Our cost drivers are that as we increase the number of customers, we also increase the demand for computational resources. Our revenue drivers are, as we increase headcount, we increase uh, the number of customers which we can provide services for. We anticipate a 33% margin by 2017. Our exit strategy is to sell to a competitor in 2018 with a valuation of $37 million. This is our team, and what I really want to get across with this slide is the fact that we are a diverse team. So we have experience in business, education, academia, industry, the practice of medicine, and uh, government. So in summary, we'll have ca positive cash flow by 2016, 33% margin by 2017. Uh, we're seeking 3,600,000, and this is to go from beta testing to academia in 2014 to 2015, sales and marketing to full market launch in 2015, and sales and marketing to scale up in 2018. I'm going to show part of the, um, what we have on the website live now and what you can access. Okay, so what we see here is uh, a potential medicine here interacting with the disease target. And really understanding those interactions is crucial to making better medicine. So um, this is what you can see through the website. And also here, you can start to actually design, actually start to put molecules together. And we envision this really as an educational tool uh, in the beginning. And then and we, allowing students to be able to see what those interactions are that make medicine. So thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you, Benjamin. Uh, and next, we will have Z Inspector. Please. 
Hi, I'm Andy Wallace with Z Inspector. It's a pleasure to be here today at the Big Bang Competition. This started a few years ago. My wife and I, we started a property management company, and we soon found ourselves with a server accumulating many tens of thousands of photos on it every year. But what we've developed is much more than just cloud photo storage. It's really a complete communications hub designed to link property owners, property managers, contractors, and tenants. A few weeks ago, I presented at the National Association of Residential Property Managers, and it was very clear that a typical agent wants to take between 100 and 200 uh, pictures per property per year. Well, if you're managing 300 properties, that's 30,000 photos. And in California, you need four years of records. That's 120,000 photos. That is a lot of information for any small business to manage. There's a lot of different uses of this. Certainly security deposit documentation is a key one, but there's many others. For instance, government compliance issues, like in the city of Sacramento, you've got to do annual safety inspections. As well as just owner relations is a critical one. Many owners do not come to a property for multiple years at a time. You've got to give them all the information that they can so you know that you're maintaining the property well, as also get their approval for various repairs. And then really one, a critical one that you have to kind of be in the industry to really understand the importance of is the employee and vendor management aspects of it. We really want to know exactly when someone's been to a property, exactly what work was done, and who did it. So we want to get all this information, collect it, put it in a very usable reference database for all of our key employees to use, and at the end we've got to save employee time as well. It starts with a simple-to-use mobile app. At the kind of upper uh, top of it there, you've got a drop-down bar where you can start searching, and you can search your hundreds or thousands of properties, however many you have in your database. Then you pick your activity, whether I'm there for check-in, check-out, leasing, and whatnot. And then you pick your area, so whether it's a bathroom, hallway, or bedroom, master. Now that information then is synced between all your users, whether it's a tenant, a property manager, or a contractor doing a photo or inspection. Now it's all going to be linked together. So once you have all this information, there's a lot of different reporting options that are available. So for instance, we have a commercial landscape company. They've got 150 different employees in the field. They start, start to have 13 of their users using this software. They got one group of people that does bidding, another group of people that does the actual construction, another group that does repairs, another group does maintenance. So they got all these different teams of people going to the same property, and now we, they collect all that information in one common reference point that they can use across their company. So our target market is these initial, these kind of mid-sized property managers, and then from there, providing the right add-on services so they can submit a work order to the contractor, the contractor can submit an invoice back, that the contractors are going to want to use this for their, the other properties that they work on as well. So we kind of expand our market that way, as well as providing unique services to tenants. It's very important that tenants do the right move-in paperwork when they check in, so if a screen was not out of window or screen was damaged. So now they've got the right documentation for their own records as well. So it kind of it continues to expand our market. So in terms of our business model, we're, again, primarily targeting these small property managers. We do see large property management companies as a significant opportunity. We're starting to talk to some that are managing over 50,000 units, but it's a longer sales cycle. So we haven't included that in our revenue forecast. 
the terms of the pricing, it's going to be $10 per user for property managers and supervisors and $5 for every support employee. And then tenants and anyone else who's using it for five properties or less can use it for free. But now we've got some very specific information so we can provide very content-driven advertising like rental trucks for moving out or storage facilities, kind of very uh, focused advertising. In terms of our go-to-market strategy, we're, gonna, we're an affiliate member for the key trade associations like the National Association of Residential Property Managers, the um, National Apartment Association, and they've got their big national trade shows in October, and so we're synchronizing our product release date for October of this year. In terms of competitors, you could easily think first like of Evernote or Dropbox. We really see those as partner opportunities. We are, um, for instance, already all of our inspection reports, you can already have them automatically go into Evernote. And then in terms of other competition, there's a lot of property management software, but it's really focused on accounting software and really kind of internal operations. And then there's other, a number of startups that are doing really uh, just developing simple apps to really uh, just replace one part of the paper process. And what we're doing is something different where we're starting with the property, using all the details of the property to connect everyone who's involved with it over time. Our revenue projections are primarily based on the number of property management companies that we can sign up for the, for the software. We've got good market research in terms of how many employees they typically have. And then we've got data in terms of how often tenants move in and out. And so then that's easy that we can provide them services um, during those time frames. But then over time, we actually expect contractors to be uh, probably the most significant source of revenue over time. Uh, contractor management, subcontract management, it's a key issue for small businesses and really providing them the right uh, control software is what um, is a significant opportunity for us. In terms of valuation, um, Dropbox, it's estimated that they're valued at about $40 per user. So in a few years, we're estimating about having 1.2 million tenants. So you could put us just at that simple metric at a valuation of about $50 million. Now, when you look at something like Dropbox and you look at their their business model, they lose money on somewhere between 96 and 99% of their users, and they're hoping that if they have a big enough database that they'll eventually get enough paid uh, subscribers. Our model is very different. So we're first starting with property managers, kind of a very targeted market, building that to contractors, and then building that to tenants. And so we're going to have a much higher revenue per user, and because of the way the data usage is, we have a much lower cost per user. So we really should be able to drive a much higher value valuation in terms of uh, dollars per user than a company like a cloud company like Dropbox. In terms of our team, this is the core team, is myself, uh, Kim Braden on the left. She's been managing a team of a few property managers that have been using various versions of the software since September. The rest of the team is primarily technical. Um, Jonathan, Aaron, Jennifer are all UCD affiliates. And Ignacio manages our team in South America doing web development. We're uh, ramping right now to get 100 beta customers currently in, in, in place at the, at the moment. We have 30 of them. They're starting to use the software. We want all that going by October, so we've got a lot of testing under our, our belt, and then do the full release of software in October. We've currently invested $60,000 into the company, and we're looking to raise 500000 We expect to be profitable near the end of 2015, but we anticipate raising another round of money at that time to support uh, both working capital and to accelerate growth.
So Z Inspector, we started as really a very market-focused company. There was a clear business need that we wanted to go after in terms of uh, supporting these small business, business owners. We've developed the core technology and all the core platform to servicing this market. We've got a provisional patent filed for our approach. And it's really a very significant opportunity in our one-to-many strategy. It's this content-based cloud strategy. So it then facilitates a very high revenue per user and a very low cost per user. And right now we're seeking investors, strategic partners, and professionals in sales and marketing. Thank you for your time. All right, great job, Andy. Okay, next we're gonna have Benjamin and Nevat. Hi everybody, my name is Dr. Benjamin Wang and I'm the uh, Chief Medical Officer and Founder of NEVAP Incorporated. And what we do is we make medical devices to address ventilator-associated pneumonia, a $12 billion hospital-acquired infection that affects across the board every year in the United States. To date, we filed a U.S. patent, we have a third-generation functional prototype, and we have a team assembled with enough experience to bring this product to market quickly. But what is really the problem here? Well. This is the gold standard endotra subglottic endotracheal tube. And what it is, it's a tube that's placed into the mouth and there's a little suction port here to suck out secretions. But even with this guy, 50,000 US patients every year die of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Three million, over three million patients are at risk and 300,000 patients end up getting ventilator-associated pneumonia. And every case of ventilator-associated pneumonia costs $40,000 to treat. There is no Medicare reimbursement for those patients. So hospitals have to eat up all of these costs. And that hurts their bottom lines. The, the growth and the use of ICUs and surgical care is ever increasing because people are getting older. The population is getting bigger. And, and more people are using more services. And on top of that, we're entering an age of anti, um, antibiotic resistance that is driving costs exponentially higher. So let me explain this problem. When we put the gold standard into a patient, it sits here and right here there's an accumulation of your own secretions from the mouth, the nose, to the stomach. They all end up pooling here. So this is really the focus of the infection. This is where the bacteria grow and end up seeping into the lungs. So why not suck that out? Well that's, that's the reason the gold standard has this little port here. But this is a picture taken from an academic article that shows their port gets blocked 50% of the time at any given point. And what's left to protect the patient is this cuff. This is an advertisement from our competitors that shows at the 12 minute mark, that cuff that they market right here leaks just a little bit less than everybody else. Because look at all this other fluid that leaked from their competitors. But for a patient that is intubated for two days, two weeks, two months, six months, 12 minutes doesn't carry them very far, okay? Here at NEVAP, we've created a suction line that is simple, effective, unique, and low risk to patients and physicians. It's readily usable and integratable into hospital protocols, and all of the manufacturing processes are known. On top of that, it's a class two device, which means all of the other predicate devices that are similar to it didn't need clinical trials or significant clinical data 
to get through the FDA. And that's the difference between something that takes years, four years, five years, and something that takes three to six months. And that's why this product we can bring to market so quickly. When we gave this to the physicians, they said, wow, this makes sense. This is something that can work. We gave it to some of my peers and they said, when can I get this? When can I test it in some patients? I, want to, I know the study. I know what I'm going to do. We gave it to industry experts and they said, this can have a dramatic effect. When can we have it? And when we gave it to even some of the more established older physicians, they said, I know what that is. When can I see some data on this? So just to give you a little bit more information, these are the competitor tubes. And if they all look similar to you, that's because they really are similar. They've all made incremental improvements in the same fashion. They all have that single uh, suction port that gets blocked. And they're minutely, if any, better than each other. Okay? We have something different. We have a technology where our suctioning never gets blocked. Regardless of how the patient moves, and it, our ceiling is reinforced by that same suction. Okay? That makes it safe to change because you don't have that pool of secretion sitting there waiting to fall into the person's lungs if you take this tube out. And that's important for growing this market and for better outcomes. Bottom line is we can deliver better outcomes to patients, save hospitals billions of dollars every year, and decrease liability for physicians all at the same time by introducing this tube. We can also lower the rate of um, multi-resistant bacteria, and this device can be applied to other technologies in the medical field. When we asked physicians, what do you care about? What are the features that you cared about? They said this. We care about the secretions and suctioning and the blockage rates. And when we asked them, what do you think of that device and what do you think our device could do, this is what we got back in return. And we beat them across the board in everything that the physicians cared about. How are we going to get to market? Well, let's talk about the market. We estimate that the current market is about $420 million. And if that's too small for you, stay with me because I'm going to increase that threefold. Okay? We're going to target these large hospital chains, and we're going to be very effective market-wise because these, these are big players. These are not the biggest ones, but these are the ones everybody knows. Kaiser, Sutter, that kind of thing. We're going to target these um, decision makers, the anesthesiologists, the critical care specialists, by creating publications and showing that we can save billions of dollars through those, sub those publications. And um, by giving them a unique value proposition to hospitals, too. So let me show you something. This is our value proposition. It's complicated. Don't worry. I will walk you through it. All you have to do is focus on these, these different colored boxes. And the blue boxes are just to show that we have a bottom-up approach to these problems. Okay? Right now, one physician puts one tube for one patient, and the hospital makes about $15. And if we make that a baseline for the savings in terms of infection control, we'll put that as zero. And the competitor makes about $34 a tube. If our tube was introduced today, the physician could change the tube, which means they could follow the CDC guidelines and put two tubes when the first tube got dirty. That would immediately save on VAP costs. The VAP risk would decrease. Hospitals would be very, very happy. In addition, because we're selling two tubes instead of one, we, if we had the same price point, we would double the profit, and we would grow the market by a factor of two. 
but that's not even where we're going. Because once we have the physicians on board and they prove that our device is better, we deserve a new billing code and we are going to go for that and give the hospitals even more incentive, the $40 instead of $30, to, um, to show them that this is the device they should be using in their hospitals. And at that point, we can make more money out of the hospitals, decrease the liability for physicians, and make more money for NEVAP, which will make us a very attractive company to our competitors. Currently, we have a strategic partner who has all the capital equipment already set up and the OEM and expertise to make this product. So by outsourcing this to a partner, we estimate that we can bring the cost of, uh, cost of goods of this product down to $2 a tube. Our initial focus for our market is to go after independent physicians who are doing research in this active research field. And by doing that, they're gonna generate the publications that we need to target other anesthesiologists and critical care specialists at medical conferences and through, public, um, through publications. Those are the thought leaders. Those are the leaders we need to get on our team to say this is better, that they want to do the studies. Because when that happens, we'll be able to go and get that new billing code and give everybody an incentive to switch to us. Okay? And in order, to in order to bring this to as many patients as possible, we are going to partner and private label this to reach as widely and distribute as far as we can all across the United States. Our initial price point will be $10 a tube or free to those physicians who will generate the data we need to go further. Once that is attained, we're going to target anesthesia groups and give them the same value proposition that the current tube does, except they'll be able to bill more. And lastly, we'll give a $60 price point for the distributors once we have the code and we can ensure everybody else makes more money. This is our team. We have a very experienced team. There's almost 100 years of medical device development experience in this team. And Brenton is our CEO with over 30 years of C-level um, experience at Abaxis. So we know what we're doing and we can bring this, to, bring this product to market. This is our milestones, and this is very aggressive. You won't see this anywhere else, and it's only because of the nature of the product and the nature of the team that we can accomplish these, these milestones at this pace. And hopefully, with some luck, we will be building the product near the end of this, uh, end of this year. We project if we can do that, we can break even by year two. And by year three, we'll be ready to ramp up. And that means we can bring in significant returns for our investors. We estimate the general margins to be 85% or higher once we have the ramp up production. And um, I just want to tell you that we can accomplish the first set of these goals with only 500,000. And that's only possible with partnering with our overseas manufacturer. We're gonna use this to put all the filings and the patents in place. We're gonna do that lean pilot run and we are also gonna get this thing made and put into the hands of physicians. In summary, we're solving a big problem. 3.5 million US patients per year. And we can save the hospital billions. We have a functional prototype, we are ready to go. We have enormous social benefit. And we have strong incentives for every person involved. So if you've seen anything that you like today, please feel free to contact me afterwards. Uh, my name is Benjamin, and uh, please call me Ben, and I look forward to speaking to everybody. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, Zasaka, you're next. Thank you. 
Thank you, everybody, for coming this evening. It's a pleasure to speak to such a diverse crowd. We are Zasaka. My name is Carl Jensen, co-founder and CEO. Unfortunately, my fellow co-founder couldn't be here today. He's in Zambia, getting our business running, and it's a pretty long drive to Davis. However, our CFO, Rashmi Eka, will be my co-presenter this evening. What Zasaka does is simple. We work with farmers in Sub-Saharan Africa to know more, grow more, store more, and earn more. We do this by focusing on four areas, training, production, storage, and markets, and looking for ways that we can come into the value chain, bring these together, and add value. Over the past 50 years, agricultural productivity growth has been tremendous. These lines in blue, red, and green represent most of the world. This purple line represents Sub-Saharan Africa, essentially flat. What this graph doesn't show is that within this purple line, the exact same dichotomy is represented in all of these countries, where commercial farmers are growing five times as much as their smallholder neighbors. Of what comes in, entirely too much is lost. Grain-boring insects and mold create post-harvest losses of up to 30%. When I was first in Zambia, sitting with a smallholder farmer, looking at these grains, the ones that have been infected by insects, you can take them between your thumb and forefinger and crush them, turning them into dust, because they're essentially a hollow shell. What's more, this cycle repeats itself year after year. Not enough is grown, and too much is lost. We come into this with a combination of services and technologies. Our first product is the Purdue Improved Crop Storage Bag. It's extremely simple. With one woven outer layer, and two inner layers of high-density polyethylene plastic. When it's tied, like you see here, it creates a contained inner environment where air doesn't enter easily, the pests and grain inside continue to breathe, eventually lowering oxygen levels to a point at which the insects cannot survive. What's more, relative humidity is maintained, so molds are suppressed. Other technologies we're introducing include high-yielding seed varieties and fertilizer. These are mostly a matter of access, which, with capital, with funds, we can provide. Technologies in the pipeline include a jab planter, which is a labor-saving, back-saving device to place seed and fertilizer easily. A typical production cycle looks something like this. With land prep and planting coming in October and November, coinciding with the single rainy season of the year. Green harvest is in February or March, that's when grain is ready to eat, and Main harvest, when it's dry enough to sell, comes in April and May. The problem is that every farmer in a region hits this cycle at exactly the same time. So when everybody's harvest is ready to sell, prices crash. Buyers are lining up, and farmers are short on food stores and savings, so they sell at whatever price people are offering. Later in the year, when their own food stocks decline, they enter what's called the hunger season, and they often buy back the exact same product they were selling at an elevated price. Zasaka's solution is to come in as a buyer. We offer a slight premium because we have this technology, because we can guarantee that what we put into the bag is what will come out, both in quality and quantity. We then store and sell the, ma sell the maize or other grains later in the year. Rashmi will tell you how we engage with farmers throughout this process. 
Okay, so let's talk about money. There are essentially two financial transactions between ourselves and the farmers. The first happens over here during land preparation, where they have to buy seeds and fertilizers from us. And then they sell the grains that they grow seven months later during harvest. That means they get paid just one time a year. Imagine if you had your entire annual earnings come in one month. So that is a pretty huge cash flow issue for them. To get around this problem, what we do is put our farmers on a payment plan. The way it works is we do a first payment in May and June when they sell us the grain. This is about 50% of the price of the total amount of grains that they sell to us. The second payment is done in September, October, right before they go into the next planting season. And the third payment happens during the hunger season. Farmers are now going to earn money during the hunger season, but that means there's not going to be any hunger season anymore. According to the performance of the market, we are able to increase uh, their earnings. The green line was the maize market. We are going to diversify into other crops. Uh, the blue line is cowpeas or black-eyed beans, as they're known in America. And you can see that th that market has a different cycle. So we're going to be able to have a year-round business in this way. What's also exciting about Zambia is that traditionally or historically, uh, the Zambian government has been the main buyer of grains uh, using a lot of subsidies. Starting this year, they're opening up the market, so it's exactly the right time for us to enter. For a typical farmer working on one hectare of land, which is essentially two football fields side by side, they can expect just over one ton of production. That's 24 bags, the size of what we showed you earlier. Of those, 16 are stored in the home for later consumption, and eight are left to go on the market. This is not including the losses that we showed you, that we talked about earlier. Just by selling their surplus to Zasaka, they can get an extra $2 per bag, or $16 of revenue increase. By using the bag themselves and playing the markets, they can get up to $80 of increased revenue. And finally, by working with a Zasaka farmerpreneur, an agent that we train and send out into the field on our behalf to increase yields using different seed varieties, fertilizer, and in techniques that preserve long-term soil health, we're anticipating yield increases of one ton per year. This grows their total their total production, and sends more to the market. Farmerpreneurs don't work with just one farmer, they work with farmer groups. And typically they work with three or four, meaning they serve 40 farmers at a time. After a year, when they've been giving trainings, getting trainings, and are tested, evaluated, and certified, they can train other farmerpreneurs. These farmerpreneurs reach out to other farmer groups, allowing us to grow exponentially into what is a very large market. There are 1.7 million smallholder farmers in Zambia and 1.8 million smallholders in Malawi. The vast majority are operating on less than five hectares of land. This is Malawi and Zambia, highlighted in gray and magnified here. The stars represent the capitals of these countries, the green dots where we'll be launching. Chipata is in the east and Mumba in the central province on the left. Our growth is as I mentioned before, organic, farmerpreneur to farmerpreneur. However, we'll be launching new sites strategically so that we can get into the right markets. 
That, second, uh, that third dot you see there in Malawi is a year two launch site. Year four and year five. This strategy and these techniques allow us to grow throughout, beyond these two countries into other areas of sub-Saharan Africa. In June, actually in about 20 days, I'll be moving to Zambia. My background in international ag development, in soil health, and in appropriate technology makes this feel like exactly the right place for me to be. Sunday, my co-founder, is a native Zambian with extensive experience working with NGOs and USAID. We're looking for a similar person right now to be our country director of Malawi. And I've been fortunate to work with three very skilled people in Rashmi, Julia, and Kellen, who's not here tonight. They're all MBAs or business development fellows with extensive experience working internationally and in Africa. Our advisors include Kurt Kornbluth and Amy Smith, the co-founders of their respective D-Labs at MIT and UC Davis. D-Lab focuses on technology for the developing world. Diodone Baribusa, who is the program manager for PIX and has rolled this technology out in 10 countries. And Gulam Banda, who is a respected entrepreneur based out of Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and focuses on refurbishing storage structures. Our partners to date include Catholic Relief Services, Departments of Extension of Malawi and Zambia, UC Davis International Programs, and Cargill Zambia. Rashmi will talk through the numbers a little bit. Okay, so Carl talked to you about how our growth is going to be. Let me walk you through how it's going to look year by year. In our first year, we're working with 200 farmers and ramping up pretty strongly to 36,000 in five years. That's 2% market penetration. The second line shows you um, the number of bags that each farmer grows. In the first year, they grow eight bags that they can sell to the market. Through our training and our work with them through our farmerpreneurs, we'll be able to increase it to 28 bags. As the training increases and their, the farmer's productivity increases by year five, they'll be at 41 bags, which is 5x from where they had first started. Our network grows with our farmerpreneurs. By year five, we'll have over 900 farmerpreneurs in our communities. We have three main sources of revenue. The first is uh, the sale of our pig bags. The second is sale of grains. And the third is other technologies, seeds, fertilizers, the jab planter. On the sale of grains, we make a very nice margin. We buy at $10 and we sell at $18. For our operating expenses, we'll be focusing very heavily on building up our human infrastructure this first few years. That will be our field staff as well as the farmerpreneurs. We'll also be focusing on building up our transportation infrastructure so that we have trucks to move the grains around. I'm happy to show you that by the third year, uh, we are, by, by the second year, sorry, we are cash flow positive. And by the fifth year, we're making $194 per farmer that we are serving. This first year, we're seeking $100,000 to get our business off the ground and $400,000 next year. We plan to raise through a combination of grants, uh, such as the big bank competition, um, crowdfunding, as well as seed funding. The portion of that $100,000 that we already have has been put to good use. In March, we entered into agreements with bag producers in both Zambia and Malawi. Each has produced an initial rollout of 5,000 bags to which we have first rights. We initiated a storage trial with Targill, who could be a potentially massive buyer. 
In 10 days, we'll have our first post-harvest training with Catholic Relief Services. Just after that, we'll start a community storage pilot with a community that both Sunday and I have worked with extensively before. And in the final quarter of 2014, we'll roll out our extension methodology, methodology developed here at UC Davis. We're seeking $100,000 now, $500,000 in the next year. With these $100,000, we're, we're going to train 10 farmerpreneurs, reach 200 farmers, and create a path by which tens of thousands of others can find prosperity. Zasaka, translated roughly, means it's in the bag. It's a statement of confidence, in a way. A confidence that we hope to build with our growers. A confidence that when they have a question in the field about their crop, they have somebody to ask. A confidence that what they try to, try to store will be there later in the year. And a confidence that they can sell when they're ready to sell. It's also a confidence that agriculture, the field that they've chosen, the field that we've chosen, can be that, that path, that path to prosperity. Thank you for your support today and in the years to come. Thank you, Zasaka. And last, uh, Amber Cycle. Hi, my name's Akshay. I'm a junior here at UC Davis, an undergraduate, and I'm here to talk to you about AmberCycle, a company that's focused on solving the biggest problem in plastics recycling. So I shouldn't have to explain to you what a huge problem plastics propose to us today. They're disposed of in environments such as this, and in specific, specific cases like the Pacific Ocean gyre patch, they're thrown away by the hundreds of thousands of tons, only to accumulate in the middle of the ocean, far away from us, and cause a bunch of different ecological problems. It's because plastics are so pervasive. They're everywhere, in our clothing, in the carpet, and above us and around us, such that $70 billion worth of it was produced in 2013. And that's not going to change anytime soon. There's a huge problem with how we produce and consume plastics today. Like most products, it starts off as oil um, and then gets used by the thousands of tons per day in the things we know and love. But after that, you know, what happens to it? Most of it actually gets sent to a landfill. It's not recycled, um, and there, there's a lot of reasons why. The biggest one is this. There's a high temperature melt in today's recycling processes that destroy the quality of plastics today. So in a sense, you can't really turn a plastic bottle into another plastic bottle. That's actually not possible today, until now. What we do is we take post-consumer material and turn that into chemicals that can be used to make new plastic, thus allowing for the creation of a plastic bottle from another plastic bottle. We call it biocycling. So imagine the scenario, right? So we have a plastic material. It doesn't have to be a water bottle. It can really be anything. We use enzymes, an enzymatic reaction that degrades the plastic into two chemical components, terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol. Let's call those uh, PTA and EG for now. They make up all plastic materials that you know and love today. What we're going to do is we're going to take these two chemical components and use them for very specific reasons. We're selling terephthalic acid, I'll call PTA for the rest of the presentation, and we're using ethylene glycol, which is EG, in a unique process in our industrial scale. So what's that really going to look like? It's going to look something like this. Let's take some plastic and our novel enzymes and combine them in a reaction chamber. You'll start to see the reaction happen and the plastics are going to start to degrade and you'll get uh, PTA out the back end. 
So we still have the EEG. Um, that's actually going to go towards feeding our bacteria. So our bacteria are producing our enzymes. Our enzymes are degrading the plastic in a closed loop recycling process. This whole process is closed loop with the one input being plastic and no net waste being produced. It's a little different. So this is kind of what it looks, uh, the teratogenic acid looks like today. This is uh, um, what we're going to imagine and we're going to pull out out of our reactors um, moving forward. So if you want to do this today, you know, you can do whatever this is. Um, uh, it's, it's a large processing facility, um, processing uh, plant that takes, you know, so much resources, so much energy. What would ours look like? That. Water solvent. Atmospheric pressures. Normal temperatures. There's only one moving part in it. It's much more simple than the petroleum way to do it today. So we have a great process. We'll, do we have any value in it? Yeah, we definitely think we do. Uh, the total PTA mark is about $50 billion per year. That's only going to increase. We're gonna, I'm going to try and convince you that we can take about 1.1% of that in the next seven years. That's about $50 million in revenue. How are we going to make it? By selling it. There's only 12 customers, though, who really can use and produce plastics, and most of them are oil companies. They vertically integrate and they have most of their supply chains within their own company. These are a few of the companies that do actually buy PTA, and we've talked to a lot of them, and they've said, you know, this product can be used for us. Um, based on the data we've done and data we've collected, we believe we're going to be profitable by 2020, which in a biotech space is actually really on par. There's obviously other people doing this kind of stuff, but there's really three key elements to any successful recycling company. Do they make products cost effectively? Do they use post-consumer plastic? And are they creating high-quality plastic? So we meet all three of those key variables which we believe will drive our, ourselves forward. Companies do do chemical depolymerization, like Tajin. Um, they do use post-consumer material and they're cost-effective, but they really don't produce a high-value uh, product. Companies like Reprieve do use post-consumer material as well and produce a high-quality product, but it's not cost-effective. They don't have an incentive to do it, and so that actually has not been doing, it's not being done today. And then familiar processes uh, like the Moco process done by BP and Shell, you know, thousands of tons per day, cost-effective and produce virgin-quality plastic, but they don't use post-consumer material. And I'm going to show you why that's going to be the most important part of our business. Securing feedstocks is the biggest risk in this industry. Where are you getting your plastics? How are you going to take them? That's actually the biggest part of it. We, 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 know, we know this, and we're going to try really hard to secure feedstocks moving forward uh, to avoid uh, possible um, problems with our business. And we've learned this actually very surprisingly through a lot of research and talking to a lot of different customers. Another key factor that we're going to use to put ourselves ahead is IP protection. In the next two weeks, we're going to have a utility patent with about 68 claims submitted um, through our friends with DLA Piper. And we're also getting a freedom to operate study done. So a freedom to operate study really helps us in showing us where patents lie today, where patents lie in five years and ten years moving forward. Obviously, chemical companies know what they're doing, so we want to make sure we have a path through all these large companies as a startup producing a petrochemical. And we all believe that this is a great uh, technology, not only my team but my advisory board. Um, our team right now is four key members, myself and Victor here today, are both undergraduates here at UC Davis. And then two grads of UC Davis uh, graduate schools, Gerald from the MBA program here this past winter and Rob out of the biochemistry department postdoc program. I've been working constantly and, and we're hoping that this, pro this project will really be driven forward with the involvement of these people. We have a fantastic advisory board as well. Mark Facciati is a faculty here at UC Davis and has been really great in helping me 
do all the research and, and drive this project forward, as well as John Fraser, Director of Chemical Innovation at Nike, who's been instrumental in helping us figure out where we lie in the scientific space. Business-wise, we have a good amount of help as well. Jim Adams from NASA helping us where we can determine what scientific innovation falls where and the safety and all that kind of stuff with that. John Bissell, a graduate of UC Davis as well, started a successful biotech company who's been a really great personal mentor for me as well. And Rob Kaplan, the director of sustainability at Walmart, who's really showed us the supply and demand side economics, whether or not this can work and how we're going to get it to actually work logistically. So we're actually moving it on the ground. This is a little picture of our lab that we have on campus. Um, and we have the equipment and the materials necessary to move forward. We're located in Davis, and like I said, we've been working on it for about a year and a half now, um, and really making some solid progress uh, to develop our prototype and improve it uh, as well. We're not the only ones that believe this project can be good as well. We've gone through tons of different business and scientific incubator processes to really realize that we're not the only people that think this is going to work. We've been validated by all these groups, and a year ago when we did the Big Bang, this really kind of started this whole, this whole motion, uh, this, uh, this whole project in motion. So down to the business. We have a two-fold revenue stream. The sale of BioCycle PTA and then the out-licensing of BioCycling process. We'll produce our chemical initially and try and sell this on a chemical commodities market through partnerships with the companies I presented to you earlier. Down the road, we might look at out-licensing our, pro our process. There's chemical companies that do this stuff every day with large-scale reactors. This stuff can really be in implemented into their processes right now. So this is kind of what our financials, we think our financials will look like. By 2020, we'll be profitable. And as our company grows over time, you can see how it scales in terms of how much product we're producing, how our company's growing, and what kind of investment we're going to need. So I'd like to take, take a time and talk about the capital-intensive nature of this. There's obviously a lot of different ways we can go with this. We can obviously try and make a processing facility. Another play could be developing our IP and then licensing completely uh, to partners that can make this, who can make this possible and kind of avoiding the whole uh, capital-intensive nature of the biotech space. It really depends on where we think we're going to go, and we're open to a lot of different things depending on who's working with us and where we feel like uh, we'll find the most success. Key financial drivers to our company, the price of scrap PET, like I said, is going to be huge, securing it more so than the cost. And based on the price of that scrap, along with multiple other factors, this is our basically summing up our business. COGS, cost of goods and services, is about $300. That includes costs of freight and shipping as well. The price of PTA, uh, as it is a chemical, chemical commodity, it's been sold on a commodities market. It's never dipped below $1,000 in the past 5, 10 years. And because it's oil fluctuating, we're going to use that price as our baseline. So we're going to get a net revenue of about $700, which does seem like a lot, but it really fits into how most biotech companies make their money today due to the fact that they are very capital intensive. So where are we going to go from, forward from today? We have two real goals for the next come, upcoming year. Develop our prototype in the space we have with the people we already have and try to secure about $600,000 in seed round financing. That money is going to be used to hire key additional employees as well as the equipment we need uh, to really secure how our process is going to scale up. From there, we're going to design a pilot plant. Um, obviously, the licensing stuff fits in uh, at different places here, but this is kind of our main goal. Pilot plant design and then optimization for scale-up so we can start producing as much uh, purified terephthalic acid as possible. And like I said, there's a bunch of different ways we can go with this. Obviously, a licensing play is a possibility. A production plant is a possibility. We're really open to anything. So I started this uh, about two years ago as a freshman here at UC Davis, and we've grown a lot, learned a bunch of different stuff, and we really feel like this technology will change the world moving forward. I'd like to thank you for your time, and hopefully I've convinced you that we're really going to change the plastics recycling industry today. Thank you.
that concludes our presentations for the evening. Let's one more round of applause for our finalists. They did a great job this year. Really did. So now I have the pleasure of introducing Cleveland Justice. He is our new executive director. He joined the Institute this past December. He's been a wonderful addition to the team and uh, he's just got really uh, just a, a great vision and um, a lot of excitement for what we're doing here and, and um, just I'm excited about what we're going to be doing with expanding our programs going forward. So no further ado, Cleve, please. And just to remind you, if you could mark your ballots for your favorite People's Choice uh, finalist team, pass those to the right, and we'll come along the aisles and collect those and tally them up while Cleve is, is speaking. Thank you. Wow, what a night. Holy moly. Um, I'd like to ask if you could do me a favor while you're filling out your ballots. Because like, there's a whole lot of people who've made this year happen. As most of you know, the Big Bang competition starts in the fall and really concludes this year. And then we pause, uh, concludes tonight, and then we pause for about a week and start planning for next year. But I'd like to ask if you could stand up if you were a judge for this year's competition. Great. Stay standing, please. If you are a mentor to a team this year, stay, stay standing, please. Great, and if you are, an, uh, don't sit down, don't sit, stay standing. If you, are an, if you are an entrant at all in this year's competition on a team of any form this year, stay standing. Great, how about any other, oh, okay. <laughs> if you wanna clap, that's fine too. If, if you are, have you ever, ever entered the Big Bang? Please stand up. Excellent. If you've ever supported the Big Bang in one form or another, stand up. Okay, thanks. And if you consider yourself an entrepreneur, stand up. Oh, come on. I'm trying to get everybody to stand up. It's time to move. Okay, shake hands, say hello to somebody. Thanks, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, you know, I was, I was a graduate of the business school at Davis and a big supporter of Big Bang while I was here and it's, it's just been incredible over the last 14 years to see how this has progressed. One of my first uh, opportunities to get to know Big Bang again uh, started when um, Andy Hargadon asked me to fill in about uh, 20 minutes before he had to present. And you can imagine, you know, if uh, there's two classes of people with, around Andy, those uh, who are in love with Andy and those who want to be Andy. And I'm not sure I filled in either way on, on those, but I got to jump in. I got to see these ideas uh, evolve over the course of the year and work with teams and talk to teams and hear the work that's been happening from these different teams that we've had this year. Um, so it's just incredible to see what's happened tonight. So I think tonight I was supposed to talk about regional entrepreneurship and I had something that happened to me on Friday that made me not want to talk about regional entrepreneurship because it felt like I'd be talking to the converted in this room to talk about this region and what's going on. I'll talk, touch on it but I had something really dramatic happen to me on Friday, which is one of my former employees, a dear friend, um, her son passed away of brain cancer at 10 years old. And it touched me really deeply and made me think about my work, particularly because I have a 10-year-old son and I have an 8-year-old son. And I thought about that. And it was one of those moments where you really stop and think about what you're doing. And I couldn't stand up here and talk about entrepreneurship in our region 
I wanted to talk about why we do this work. I think most of us in this room are entrepreneurs of one form or another, and I think it's worth pausing. Uh, for me, it went to thinking about my own children, of course, and thought about the number of times that my own children, have, their lives have been saved by entrepreneurs. You know, think about my son when he was one year old, and uh, he had terrible um, gastroenterology, you know, just terrible vomiting, diarrhea, and he had to spend a couple nights in the hospital. His life was saved by entrepreneurs. It was saved by doctors, people who were able to change the world through their ability to take the ideas in their head and transform them into products, into processes like we've seen tonight. Um, I think about the times my kids have fallen and used a certain type of medical technology or device or processes or the, the supplements or, or whatever. And I just thought about this, uh, this family whose lives have been forever changed by probably uh, a disease that will 5, 10, 15 years no longer exist because of entrepreneurship. You know, that opportunity to take the great work that we have in our heads, that we have in our labs, that we have on campuses like UC Davis or Sac State or UC Berkeley or Marin Community College um, or Sacramento High School, whatever that is, and take those ideas and those people that have supported us into taking that idea to vision. And so, you know, rather than, rather than talk about this region, I think we know that. We know something very special is happening here. You look around this room and we've got the leaders of our banks and our law firms and our universities. I don't have to talk about that. But what we're doing here, these five presentations or the 66 uh, teams that entered our competition, that's what we're doing here. These, you know, if you, if you summed up the first hour of tonight's presentation, you could sum it up not about making money. I mean, we all love money, right? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to get rich? But these folks are talking about changing lives. They're talking about making the world a better place. And do they want to get rich? Ah, who doesn't? But they're also trying to make the world much better. And I think about this, and I think about the spirit of this, this place and, and that drive to make the world a better place. And we could talk about that for hours, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm um, standing between you and, and more alcohol, so I won't. But, you know, I, I, I've seen it so often, and it's been one of the great pleasures of supporting entrepreneurs most of my life. I was struck um, a number of years ago. My wife and I were uh, going to... Um, we were going to move to the Northwest. And she said, oh, my, my friends are starting a, a, a book company. This was 1995, to sell books online. And we stayed, uh, we stayed in their apartment, their one-bedroom apartment. And um, we thought it was so cute. You know, that was AOL days when you got to dial up and hear those weird noises. I know I just aged myself. Um, but, uh, and we thought it was cute. They were going to sell books online. Well, that's Amazon, right? That was Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos. And you know, this idea of selling books is now transformed into changing everything we know about commerce. And who knows where that will go. That was only 1995. I wish I'd invested then. Uh, but, um, or other things. I had an intern, a summer intern, that worked with me who uh, was appalled at the quality of school lunches in uh, the schools in Oakland. And she and one of the, her classmates from business school would get up at 3 in the morning and they would buy food at Whole Foods and then they would transport it to the Oakland schools as a prototype with very little money. 
And they started a company called Revolution Foods that now is over $150 million a year in revenue, over 1,000 employees, and serves millions of school lunches, healthy school lunches, and is truly, truly solving an immense social need. And now their latest project is taking on Amazon.com. Uh, Amazon.com, that's right, yeah, that would be good. Uh, Lunchables. You know, pretty remarkable to see uh, what people can do when they just take a simple idea and tran transition it. So one of the great, great things that we've seen over the course of this year through Big Bang has been that, trans that transmission, that change of, of people's ideas in, into something much larger. Even the five presentations, I've each seen those already, and I think the judges in the room can attest to how already presenting and being uh, sponsored and mentored throughout this year has taken them and made them so much stronger. So I guess I am supposed to talk a little bit about this region, but again, it seems, it seems kind of crazy to think about uh, this, this uh, region, talk about it in this group, but I do want to touch on a couple concepts because you can feel it in the air, in the Sacramento Davis region, what's happening? That something's very, very special happening here. I love this that we're Skyping in. This is wonderful. Hi. Uh, you can't see this, but we have a, a student joining us on Skype in the front, in front row. I am sorry. I embarrassed her. Uh, um, we should have that up on the video. Watch out. You're going to be at the screen for the whole room to see. Um, but to, uh, the, what's happening in this region is phenomenal. And there are two books, one written by my boss, that are worth mentioning. But uh, around entrepreneurship, I just wanted to highlight, because they, they touch on what we're doing here. Uh, the first is a wonderful book. You can tell I've, it's well-loved. Regional Advantage. And if you have, how many people have read this book? Nobody? Oh, come on. They're okay, one person's willing to admit it. Great study that compares the entrepreneurship environment around Boston to Silicon Valley. And you can, I'm happy to give you the Cliff Notes version, but it really talks about the advantages to a region and what happens to a region when it's open to change, when it's accepting to out, outside ideas. And fundamentally, uh, Annalise Sexinian's ideas say that it matters. Your region matters. Your openness to new ideas, your diversity, your educational institutions make a huge, huge difference. But ultimately, it's really about the culture. And what she was really trying to understand is why did Silicon Valley, why has Silicon Valley been able to continue to innovate as a region over and over again through so many transitions? And the corridor around Boston has not been as dynamic as Silicon Valley. And it really does come to the culture of that region. There's a lot more in there. But Sacramento is well poised with our education institutions, with, with entities like SARTA, with our law infrastructure, with our uh, venture capital infrastructure that's starting to develop. I mean, it, it truly is amazing. And then, of course, I have to give a plug for Andy Hargadon, since he's my boss. But he also wrote a great book, How Breakthroughs Happen. How many people have read this one? Hopefully it's more. Okay. Are you all the people who took Andy's class? <laughs> okay. Andy's key point is it's about the network. You can distill down everything he says in any of his writing. He'd kill me. I'm sure he's not in the room. But to say it's really about the network. It's about the network of support.
that surrounds entrepreneurs. And it's about the DLA Pipers. It's about the, uh, you know, the, the legal infrastructure, the venture capital, the person-to-person -person supporting. And there's a really interesting study, and this was just highlighted on NPR the other night, about, about uh, incubators. Everybody's really excited about incubators. Well, it turns out if you actually study incubators, they're not very successful. In, in enterprises and generating uh, successful businesses. One really notable exception, though, are university incubators. Anyone know why? It's about the network. It's about people like you in this room that are willing to dedicate your time, your talent, your treasure, and make yourself available to young entrepreneurs. If you just put a bunch of new companies in a, in a room together and try to help them be entrepreneurial, they're going to fail. If you give them a great network and give them great support from your region, they are more, more, much more likely to succeed. And that's one of the great advantages we have in this region, at this university. This place is unlike any other uh, university in its collaboration, in its cross-sector work. I mean, we could talk about all the science. We could talk about the number one ag school in the world. We could talk about the vet school. But really, it's about the culture of this region and this university. It truly is amazing. A really great example is this summer, we're putting on an entrepreneurship academy with the vet school, the med school, the College of Engineering, the Office of Research, and the business school. Now, I don't know how many of you know universities. That's unprecedented anywhere. Deans don't always get along. There's some egos involved in universities. Our dean's out of the room, I think. There may be others in the room. But it is, would not have happened. I also teach at Berkeley. I teach at Georgetown. That wouldn't have happened anywhere else. That's remarkable and really favors this place. You have extraordinary talent. We have extraordinary talent here at Davis that we wouldn't have uh, an access to it uh, any, anywhere else. Um, so where, where are we going here at the, at the Institute? Because I know you're all waiting at the edge, and I think we have a tally, so I'm, I'm really just the filler act um, before you get to the, now that we have the people's choice tally. But where are we going? Uh, as the Child Family Institute, uh, we have a whole lot of priorities, and I spent a lot of time with our development folks talking to people about what we do well, and probably more importantly, what we don't do well. But the, the number one opportunity we've seen is around Big Bang. So we're in year 14 of this enterprise, and we're going to keep going. And our vision is to make this the number one business competition in the country, particularly in those areas where UC Davis has expertise, ag, health, life sciences, food systems, and just go there and focus. Andy Barquette, I don't know if you have, Andy uh, has been one of our great supporters and he, you know, he, he uh, really gave us a challenge, I would say, and said, hey, let's make this a three-year process and go. And he was one of the first people I met with and we're in year, year one of this transition. This year we doubled the number of entrants in our Big Bang competition. And uh, I think what I've heard from every one of the judges is this is the highest quality that they've ever seen, the greatest thinking, so, uh, and the greatest results. So I, I am here to thank and celebrate all of the mentors and supporters and to congratulate all the people who made it to the finals. But I actually more want to spend a, a moment to acknowledge the people who didn't make it to the finals because there were 66 teams of people and a lot of great ideas, a lot of 
of great vision, a lot of great business acumen, and a number of those people are in the room. And that doesn't mean you don't have a great idea, it doesn't mean you have a great business, it just means that the final round of judges didn't pick you. And we want to see you back again. We want to see you entering one of the other lesser competitions out there in the country. We want you to know uh, that we want to support you and, and take you to the next level. So just because you, you're not getting a big fat check tonight, uh, that we consider you every bit a success as the people who do. Um, so I think it's soon time to move over to uh, get the checks, but I wanted to take a pause and invite, uh, we have four staff members uh, that have been absolutely essential who have worked for nine months on this process. And some of them are really great at being in front of people. Ah, Nicole, get back here. I saw that. Oh, she, somebody get her. Uh, we have four staff members who have worked tirelessly, uh, and some who run out the room, um, uh, to make Big Bang happen over the last um, nine months. So I'd like to welcome up to the stage, and I have a small token of our appreciation. I'd like to uh, have Mara, wherever Mara is. Mara, where are you? Come on up. Um, if you haven't met Mara, Mara Chambers works behind the scenes tirelessly. Come up on stage. Okay, you all have seen uh, Edward. Come on up, come on up on stage. Nikki. And Nicole really did run out of the door. So let's give it up for these. Thank you. I'm not sure guys are supposed to give other guys flowers, but I had to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and when you see Nicole Starsnick, if you don't know who she is, she's a woman who ran out the back. This is her flower, so thank her, because she has done so much. So one more round of applause to our wonderful team and to all of our contestants, and I'll turn the stage back over to Nikki. Very nice. Okay, so now for the, uh, the exciting part of the evening, we get to reveal the awards. So I'd like to invite up John Whitfield with Moss Adams, please, to present the Ag Sector Award, sponsored by Moss Adams. Okay, a lot's been said. Uh, this is our first year sponsoring the Ag Innovation Award. Uh, we're, we're very happy to sponsor it. Uh, food processing and agriculture is a large uh, client list in our portfolio of clients that spans across the West Coast. Uh, we honestly feel that uh, ag innovation, especially in the Central Valley, will be uh, kind of where it's at in the future. I mean, and, and if you look at this, the people in the room are going to have to be responsible for feeding a lot more people in the future, and they're going to have to find ways to do it that takes less water, takes less land, more sustainability, uh, transportation. It's not just here, it's all across the globe. We're kind of in a unique situation. Uh, we are the gym. This is ag central for the world. We can grow pretty much anything here, and uh, we need to figure out how to replicate and, and make it the most efficient process possible. So we're very happy to sponsor that. And uh, as the judges voted uh, this year. It looks like Zasaka is the winner. Thank you. 
Thank you. <laughs> so ASDCD, the Entrepreneurship Fund, as well as the Child Family Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, uh, really made it a mission this year to focus on undergraduates specifically. And so both those groups together put together a fund that we can uh, encourage and sort of fund undergraduate Big Bang teams to come forward, participate in Big Bang, uh, go through the experience, and hopefully win some money. This year we funded, uh, both groups were able to fund or award three different undergraduate teams who I would like to call forward uh, all together. And then I'll go ahead and proceed to read uh, what their team is doing. One of them you already heard of, Amber Cycle, one of the awardees. I'll go ahead and move to the second team, uh, was awarded, didn't make it to the final five, uh, didn't make it to the final 15, but one is, was one of the strongest teams in terms of coming from the beginning to where they are now. Uh, I've worked with this team specifically and have seen them come a long way. Uh, and this is Virgil with Archer. And so Archer, and a little description about what uh, Virgil works on, uh, Archer is a software startup company providing a 3D gesture-based smart TV OS for TV service and device companies. Archer's intellectual property protection technology and interface design helps its customers dramatically improve TV user experience with the touch of a finger. And the third team, which I'm going to call up, uh, I've worked with as well and I've seen uh, this student before they even participate in Big Bang and are definitely an entrepreneur at heart. I see a lot of big things coming out of this student. Uh, and this is Robert from Robert Sue with Garden. Okay. And so Garden actually uh, delivers a smart sprinkler system that decreases the environmental impact of water waste and lowers landscaping costs for the average homeowner. And these three winners have won the $1,000 undergraduate award for 2014. So we've been very fortunate as well this year to work with another group on campus uh, that is very sort of focused on entrepreneurship. This group is the Blum Center, the UC Davis Blum Center for Developing Economies. And they work with uh, different groups in partnership with UC Berkeley on sort of empowering students to be able to work in emerging economies around the world, working on entrepreneurial ventures or nonprofit ventures, uh, and really are a nice catalyst for getting students money and getting them in the field. And this year they presented a $5,000 award for a team they thought was providing big ideas for alleviating social poverty and providing positive social change in the world. And so this year they decided, uh, with third committee of judges, to award Adrasia Biotech. If they are in the room, uh, Angela, is that? Yeah, Adrasia. Great. So a little about Angela and Adrastio Biotechnology. They are dedicated to the advancement of early breast cancer detection. They're developing a handheld device to give medical practitioners the ability to do, deliver routine medical screenings for breast cancer, allowing tens of millions of low-income low Americans to receive low-cost, non-invasive breast cancer screening. Thanks. Yeah. And I will hand it over to Cleve and Nikki to 
until I get the final three awards. Thank you. Okay, so on to the big prizes for the night. I am going to announce the People's Choice Award, and then Cleve will come up to introduce the second and then the first place winner. So, we tallied up the results in the back, and it was overwhelming. You all liked one team the best. I'm waiting for your check. Bring the check up here. <laughs> That's the best part. Sasaka. Keep going? <laughs> These guys really don't know. Friends, Romans, countrymen. Okay, second place, are you ready? Goes to Amber Cycle. Last but certainly not least, Nivap. All right. <laughs> wow, fun to give away money, huh? <laughs> Is it that much fun on Skype? <laughs> Here, why don't you, Nikki's got one more announcement and then turn it back to me. Thanks. Okay. Along with the first place prize, uh, DLA Piper is also including a $5,000 in-kind services with their, with their firm. So uh, we'll connect you with them as well and, and you get that as well. All right. Thank you. I'd like to just uh, ask uh, one more big round of applause to all of our judges, mentors, and supporters. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.